If you take out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 15, I appreciate that. Luke chapter 15, if you don't have the message outline, you can pick that up right at the center doors uh, at that ministry counter. It's a green sheet of paper. Uh, from the inside, good morning again, everyone. How is everyone doing? Good, good. If now that we've worshiped, our hearts have filled up with Jesus. Uh, there, there's one thing, as we're singing those songs, there's one thing that I feel very inadequate for in terms of my job here as the pastor of this church, uh, something that uh, all my education and schooling to prepare me to do, neither did my years of experience, my decades of experience have it made me any better at, that is to adequately proclaim the greatness of our God. I think I failed in doing that. I think, how, how, you know, I think I've completely uh, failed in trying to describe who he is. I mean, how do you describe who, who God is? How do you describe the greatness of God? How do you capture the love of God when our vocabulary is so limited? How do we do that? How do we do that? God, God is, and his love is absolutely fantastic and amazing, right? There's nothing like it, the love of God. Uh, how many of you know the name A.W. Tozer? Say, I know A.W. Tozer. Anything you can read from A.W. Tozer would, not be, would be worth your while to read anything from him. But he gave a de definition, a description of God's love, and I'd like to read it to you. He says, because God is self-existent, his love has no beginning. Because he is eternal, his love can have no end. Because he is infinite, it has no limit. Because he is holy, it is the quintessence of all spotless purity. Because he is immense, his love is an incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea. When it comes to describing God to the extent of his love, I love what A.W. Tozer says here. He says, it is incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea is what he said. To even a degree, even to the smallest degree, if we can understand and comprehend the greatness of our God, it brings us to our knee either in silent or jubilant worship, right? Amen? Can we understand the greatness of our God? And this love of God uh, is the model for us that we're supposed to have for one another in this family of God, in this body of Christ. That's the model that we're supposed to have for one another here, here this morning. And we're starting a new series. It's called Important Values, if you've seen. And I want to share with you, if you could have on the screen a, 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 a church structure, what we want church to be, hopefully, hopefully what we want it to be. And as you look at church structure, you always want the base of it. The bottom is always the foundation is always the most important. And we can see that Jesus Christ is, is the foundation of the church. He's the foundation of everything that we believe and stuff. First Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11 says, For no one can lay any other foundation than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is our message. He's our foundation. He's everything. And without Christ as the foundation, it's all just a waste of time in terms of, of anything that we're going to do that's going to be spiritual or eternal value. Right? It's all just a waste of time. That Jesus Christ has to be our, our foundation. We sang a song last week, and many of you remember it, on, on Christ Alone. And I mentioned last week, there is a verse in that that many people want to delete. And the verse goes something like this, that through Christ, the wrath of God was satisfied. Because there are a lot of people that don't like that verse. They want to look at Jesus as much more as a, kind of a victor on the cross, that he brought us victory. Then a big part of what he did on the cross was our substitutionary atonement, right? That he took our place upon that cross. And because he did that, the wrath of God was satisfied. And when Jesus, Jesus accomplished an awful lot on the cross, he definitely was victorious over sin on the cross, amen? He was definitely victorious, but we must never forget that he took our place upon the cross. And because he was sinless, 
And because he died as a substitutionary atonement for us or covering for our sins, the wrath of God was satisfied. The justice of God was satisfied. The holiness of God was satisfied. So Jesus Christ has to be our foundation. He's the only foundation, right? Jesus Christ is our foundation. And everything we're going to teach, everything that comes from the Bible, he's the foundation of it. And then upon that, we're going to have our, the doctrines, the, the things that we, which we believe. Says the Bible says, but on that foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, according to Ephesians 2.20. When you're building in that time, they would lay this chief cornerstone, and then everything else would be aligned with that chief cornerstone. Jesus Christ for us as a church is the chief cornerstone, and everything must align with him. Our doctrine must align with Jesus. Everything has to align with him. Everything's built upon him and who he is, so that's our doctrine. And then we have our purpose. Our purpose of the church is, is to make disciples, is to uh, glorify God, to make disciples, we make disciples, we make disciples. Acts chapter 1, 8, ver Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20. That's why we exist. Our mission, we want people to know Christ, grow in Christ, and also reach others for Christ. That's our mission. That's what we want to accomplish. Multiply ourselves to reach other people, to make disciples, to make disciples. That's what we want to do. And then our values, what we're going to talk about. What's important to us? That's what we want to look at. Our values there is the next thing. It, it, it's, it's not only describes what we are, but describes, in essence, what we want to be, right? Because all these values that we're going to look at are kind of aspirational. They're, uh, uh, in other words, we have not arrived. And the one we're going to look at today, that we are family. And when we say we are family, could we be a better family? Absolutely, we could be a better family, right? We hope to be a better family. And then the last one, the one at the top there, is, is actually our, our methods. It's the methods in which we accomplish our strategy or accomplish our mission. And as you go up this chart, things can decrease. They more de de I mean, things change as you go up the chart. As you come down the chart, you're going to see things uh, do not change. As a matter of fact, when you get down to the bottom of this chart, uh, Jesus Christ does not change, right? It does not change. Our doctrine does not change. None of those things change. But as you go up the chart, things might change. Over years, you might change the methods in which you do things, ministries you do and stuff to accomplish your mission and stuff like that. In the context of Acts chapter 13, 36, the Bible says that David served God's purposes. He was right, and for his generation, he was relevant, was David. And so churches have to be right, and they have to be relevant but the most important of these, they have to be right. Well, but it doesn't mean it's an either-or. It doesn't mean we don't have to be relevant either. At Crossroads, we want to be right, and we want to be relevant with our times, right? And there are some churches that are so relevant, they desire to be so relevant, that they have used culture to interpret Scripture rather than Scripture interpret culture. And as a result, they are very relevant in their times, but they lost who they are. In the sense of being right, that Jesus Christ is the foundation. They no longer have that. And at the same time, there are churches that are so right, they're so right in what they're doing, uh, that they believe this, is, this book is the Bible, they believe the Word of God and everything like that, they believe that, that they're so out of date, they're kind of stuck in another time. And, and they, they don't understand the culture around them, they don't speak the language of the culture around them. The Bible they use has not been in the language for the last three or four centuries, and many times the music has not changed uh, in the last many, many, many decades, it's still the same music and stuff like that. So there, there's a big divide in what they're doing. They're not speaking to the culture. So churches that are right, they have a great message, but they lost their audience. And the churches that are so relevant, uh, they have an audience, but they don't have a message. So at Crossroads, we want to be right, but we have to understand the times. We have to understand the times. We have to be relevant, too. We have to be like the sons of Issachar in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. They understood the times in which they lived. 
hopefully you got all that. I went through that kind of fast. If you say, I don't understand it, but this is our foundation. So you know, everything that we teach has got to come from what Jesus said and what he taught. Our doctrines come right from that. Everything has to be based upon Christ, right? So when we focus on values, our values have to be focused upon him. So we're going to start a series today that's going to talk about the important values. And all these messages we're going to be using, talking about this series, are coming from the parables of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. Today, the important value of we are family. We are family. If you could please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. This is a familiar parable. The parable is called the prodigal son. You've probably heard it preached. I've heard it preached this parable many times. Usually the message was very simple. It was very clear, but many times I thought it was very inadequate what the passage was saying. And the message was this, that you have a prodigal. He left his father. Uh, he, he lived a sinful life. He came back and his father accepted him. That's really the message that most people preach on this. But the main character of the story is not the son. The main character of the story is really the father. And people miss that so many times. And there, there's a twist to this. With every parable, you have to ask the question, why did Jesus share it? What was the context? What was going on then at the time that Jesus would share this story at that time? Jesus didn't, j didn't just share parables or stories. Hey, this would be a good one. There was something going on at the time that Jesus would share a story or a parable to get his point across. So what was going on at this time? At this time, the Pharisees were being critical of Jesus because Jesus was hanging out with the tax collectors and the sinners. And the Pharisees thought Jesus was defiling himself in doing that. So Jesus went into three parables, one right after the other. And, and all of them talking about something that was lost. And that's something that was lost when it was found. In the first two parables, there was universal rejoicing when that which was lost was found. But in the third parable, the one we're going to go through this morning, not so much. There wasn't universal celebration. There wasn't universal rejoicing. And that's the key. And that's the twist to this story that we want to look at this morning. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, verse 11. If you can join me there, let's read the first verse. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. Let me stop right there. It's real important. How many sons did he have? Two sons. So that's the key. That's one of the main keys of this parable. It's not about one son. It's about two sons. How many times we want to focus on the one son, the one son that left, the prodigal, but it's about the two sons he's talking about. Notice what happens. He goes on in verse 12. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. This is a matter of fact, these two verses of what we're saying, that in the G Jewish person heard that in their culture, uh, if Jesus telling this story, they would be very agitated at what he was saying there to them. Because what he was saying, this young man took a lot of liberties, and he was showing an awful lot of disrespect to his father. That he's the younger, youngest one in that story, the younger brother, and he should stay in the family and build the family wealth. And in time, after his father passed away, he would receive his inheritance, probably half of that inheritance. But this young man was showing a lot of disrespect, at the very least, to his father. And at the worst, he was saying this, Dad, I, I want my inheritance. And I know I'm going to get my inheritance when you die, but I want you to die now so I can receive my inheritance. Can you imagine that saying it to your father, saying that to one of your parents? But I want you to die now so I can receive my inheritance now. So perhaps he's showing a lot of contempt for his father, right, right doing this. It is interesting what the father did because you think this would be a wonderful time for the father to say, son, you have no idea what you're talking about. You ever get that? 
You have no idea what you're talking about. You have no idea what you're doing. And you're saying, I, I, I'm going to be able to one day tell you I told you so of what you're doing here because you don't have a clue. You don't deserve any of this yet. You're young. Uh, you need to kind of keep working and doing your thing and wait for your time to come, right? But that's not what the father said. That's not what he did here. The father divided up his inheritance, and he gave it to his son. Can you imagine that? Okay, son, you want it? I'll give it to you. And he gave his, gives it to his son. And what happens, this son, after many days, the Bible says he gathers that inheritance, and he takes off to a distant country. He leaves. He leaves his father's household. The Bible said he squandered his wealth on wild living. I'm sure he, with the money, had all kinds of friends, because when you have a lot of money and you're willing to spend, all kinds of people are attracted around you because you've got a lot of do, able to do a lot of things. The Bible tells us the older brother later on will accuse the younger brother of spending the money on prostitutes, is what he says. So the younger brother goes and he does this, and he uses the money, the inheritance he received from the father, and he spends it. And now it's all gone. And at the same time, the Bible says there was a famine that came in the land, and something he couldn't control. He probably thought he could control it because he had all the money and the stuff and all this, but he couldn't control it. So a famine comes in the land, and now he's hungry, and he has no money. So he has to get a job. So he finds a job with the Gentile who had a pig farm. It had to be a Gentile because a Jew would not have a pig farm. They would not have it. It would be against the law. So he finds a job as a young Jewish man, which would be against what he believes, to be around that, against what he's supposed to be doing. So he has this job to feed pigs. Then he found out he had, had to eat with the pigs. So he's gone from being a son who had everything to now eating with the pigs. Let's pick it up at verse 17. When he came to his senses, he says, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. In other words, he's saying, My father's servants never have to worry about food, and here I am eating with the pigs and starving. That's what he's saying. So he goes on in verse 18. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. He's preparing his repentance speech to his father to go to him and say, Father, I, I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. And so he decides what the speech is going to be, so he heads back off to his dad. Going back home now. Let's pick it up. Verse 20 through 24. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father... I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. When I read this story, I think, man, what a coincidence that the day, on the day the son decides to come back home, that the father had to, happened to just be looking down the road to see his com son coming in a distance. You think that's what happened? You think that's what happened? I, I can't prove this, but, but I'm a dad. I think every day that dad got up, and he went down the end of the road, down the end of the driveway, he looked down the end of the road and looked for his son to come because his heart had to be broken for all that happened. First for his son to ask for that inheritance. You don't think that hurt the dad? And then to hear how his son was living the lifestyle. Probably didn't surprise the dad. So I think every day that dad got up and went down into his driveway, down into, looked down the road to see if his son was coming, and coming back to the house heartbroken even more. 
get up another day to go back down into the driveway to look for a son. And some of you maybe have experienced that. Maybe some of you are experiencing that right now. You went through that. You know the heartbreaking of that, to wait for that child, looking for that child to come home. And now this day he sees his son. He saw his son coming from a distance. And this father has lots of time to construct that I told you so, a speech, right? That you'd come crawling back to me, right? He has all kinds of time to, to prepare that speech, but that's not what he does at all. The father, father runs out to the son. And I want to make a comment about this because I, I, I thought about this. Everyone would know about the son. Everyone would hear about what the son did to the father. He would be a disgrace. People would, could, they would love to get their hands on this son. How disrespectful. And him coming into town, he would be ridiculed, coming to his father's house. People may attack him. They may throw things at him. Who knows what they do to him? The Bible lets us know that the father sees his son coming from far away. He goes out and embraces his son. This is a very wealthy man. He had servants. So this father probably wore a robe. He was very dignified. Wealthy men at that time did not run, did not move fast. They didn't have to. He probably took his robe, tucked it inside of his, his belt, and ran out to his son. And now the ridicule would be at the father. What is he doing? He's going to accept his son after all his son did to him. He's going to forgive his son and accept him back in that house so the father would take the ridicule for the son. Instead of people looking at the son now, they're looking at the father, what he's doing. And the son arrives, and the son starts his speech. He says, Dad, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. You just make me a servant. At least I would have something to eat, right? And the father stops him. The father interrupts him, put a robe on him, put a ring on his finger, put shoes on his feet. He embraces him, get the fattened calf. Let's celebrate. Let's celebrate. See, the story is all about the Heavenly Father. It's all about the Heavenly Father. God the Father is talking about here. How he is loving and how he is forgiving. That's what it's about. How God is loving and how he's forgiving. Now the twist. The twist of the story comes right here. Because unlike the previous two parables, there was universal rejoicing, and this one not so much. Here comes the twist, beginning with verse 25. Meanwhile, you can almost tell something's coming, right? The older brother, the older son, was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Verse 32, My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. When you, what you would expect in this story would be universal celebration. Everybody is celebrating. The son has come home. But we find out the older brother is not celebrating. He's actually angry. Remember when we started this parable in verse 11? What we say? There was a man who had two sons, right? One of them was prodigal. Oh, the other one was prodigal, too, is what we find out. The other one's prodigal, too. The one, the one chased after his desires, his sensual desires, uh, it, it was in deep sin. But we find out the other brother, the older brother, was blinded by self-righteousness, is what we find out was. Thinking that he had done everything that his father told him to do. 
None of us do that, do we? None of us do everything that our, especially our Heavenly Father tells us to do, but he thought he did. I've done everything. I've done it perfect. I've done it right. Not only that, this older brother looked at the younger brother's sins as greater than his own. And this story is also about this older brother. This story's about him. That's why Jesus told the story was about the older brother. He wanted them to get across. It's about him, what I'm trying to get across. Because these Pharisees were complaining about Jesus that he was hanging out with the sinners. They were the sinners, and the Pharisee says, we're not. We're not sinners. And they had this self-righteousness, and Jesus is saying, no, 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 you misunderstand. You both need to repent. You both have sin. That's what he's trying to say to them. So which sin is worse? Which sin is worse? You be the judge. The sin of immoral living or, or, or the sin of being judgmental, clouded in your self-righteousness. Which one is worse? You decide. But both of them, what Jesus was saying here, both of them need to repent in order to be part of the family. And that's the point of the stories, what he's saying. So he's saying to them, you're looking at these tax collectors and sinners that I'm hanging out with them. Uh, these people need me. They, they need God. But you think that you don't. So he's given that these sinners are like the younger brother and the older brother are like the religious leaders. That's you. That's you in the story. And you both are clouded in sin. You're both. You have self-righteousness, and they just have a morality. He just has a sinful life, very sinful life. But you also have sin, is what he's saying, in your life. And you both need to repent. Let me apply this uh, very quickly. We're going to apply this in, in four ways. But before I do that, I want to add a fifth way before we get to that. That maybe this story is not about our church family, but maybe this story is about your family. And, and maybe the challenge for you this morning is mom and dads that you need to walk down into the driveway. Or you need to get in your car and drive your son or daughter, and you need to tell them, I love you. And I accept you. Uh, I may not agree with everything you do, but we need to work through this. So the challenge for you, mom and dad, is you need to walk down into the driveway or go to your children's house and, and say those things. And then get the fat calf ready and get ready to celebrate, right? That's what we need to do. We need to take the initiative like this father did. He was sinned against, but he didn't want He went out to meet the son to tell him that. But we need to do that too. But four ways to apply this passage real quick. Four ways. If you have your outlines, this is going to go real quick, so be ready. Uh, we have to recognize and realize how great God's love is for us. We have to recognize and realize how great his love is. We can never comprehend it. It's the bottomless sea and it's the shoreless ocean, as A.W. Tozer said. It's a perfect picture. It's the bottomless sea and uh, shoreless ocean. We will never comprehend it, but that's the picture of love that we're supposed to have for one another in the family of God, in the body of Christ. That's the picture of love. As we look at that prodigal son, is that father that he had for his, sin, his son who sinned greatly against the father, who treated the father terrible, but the father accepted him back and forgave him, and also for the other son, who was self-righteous. The Father loved him. We see the love that God has. That's the kind of love we're supposed to have for each other. The forgiveness, to bear with one another, not hold grievances. That's the love we're supposed to have. That's our model, the love that God has, that we're supposed to have for one another. The second way to apply this passage is we all need to repent of our sins. For some, it's the immorality. It's the bad choices. It's the bad friendships. It's the lifestyle that runs counterintuitive to the faith, counterintuitive to the, what the Bible says. We need to repent of those things. But for some, it's equally bad, the sin of self-righteousness. Sometimes we say, oh, that's not too bad. But it's equally as bad, self-righteousness, where we look down upon other people because of their sin and we judge them. Because of our judgmentalism, is that a word? Judgmentalism? 
may not be a word, but to our own need. We don't see our own need to our need of Jesus. We don't see that we need the love of Jesus because we think we got it all right. That I'm all right. I'm not that bad. Look at them. They're terrible. But we don't look at our own self-righteousness. We don't look at the plank in our own eye. We don't look at the sin in our own lives, right? Every one, of them, every one of them needs to come to repentance to be a part of the family of God, what he's trying to say. All of you need to come to repentance. Everyone does, he's saying. So as we return and we come to the family, we have to come in repentance is what Jesus was getting across in that parable. If anyone was describing you today, may I encourage you to give your heart and life to Jesus. Because we have to. We have to repent and come and give it to him. And you can run through bad decisions as the younger brother did in the parable, or you could stay put like the older brother, smug in your self-righteousness. To be part of the family of God, to be part of his family, we have to come on our knees before him in repentance and place it in our lives on the foundation of Jesus Christ. That's where you become part of the family of God, right? It's through Jesus. All of us need that. Every one of us needs that. And if it talks about you today, none of us here have arrived, including myself. We have not arrived. We can't say, oh, boy, I've got no sin. Guys, as soon as we say that, it's self-righteousness, just to think that we're right and perfect in our own hearts and minds. Your actions may not show outwardly actions, show your sinning, but many times our motives and our thought life does. And we try to hide it. We're really good at hiding that kind of stuff, aren't we? But we all have that kind of stuff. And that's what Jesus, that's what the, the religious leaders were. They were like that, their self-righteousness. And they were thinking, hey, look it, I'm good. And everybody thought they were good until Jesus exposed what was going on. And all of us have that. We all have sins. We all have things that we deal with. None of us have arrived. We all have weaknesses, and we need each other. So we have to come in and kind of confess it. And that's what Jesus is saying. Let me apply this to you. I have shared this with before, and I uh, feel very strongly about this, that church is not an option as a follower of Jesus Christ. So many times people think it's an option. The, the church, the body of Jesus, was never meant to be an option. It never was in the New Testament. It's not today to be an option. And, and so many times the people think it's just an option, that I don't have to go to church. It is congruent with New Testament thinking to say, I'm a believer in Jesus, and I'm not plugged into a family of God, that I not belong to a local church, that I'm not involved in a local church. For you to say that I'm a believer in Jesus and not involved in a local church, it's incongruent. It doesn't go with the Bible. If you say that I'm a follower of Jesus, that I've trusted Jesus as my Savior, but I'm not going to church, I'm not in the church like I should be, I need to question my own heart and say, man, am I really following Christ? I'm really in the way with Jesus, because that's what a disciple means. I'm in the way with him. It's incongruent. If you're a follower of Jesus, we go to church, right? We need to be here. We need to build each other up. That's what the family does. We meet together. We encourage one another. We pray for one another. That's what we're supposed to do. I'm not suggesting everyone has to come to Crossroads Community Church. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that. But if not Crossroads, go to another church based on the personal work of Jesus and get involved. Get involved. Be a part of that. But don't sit back and say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm not going to church. I'm not in church on a regular basis. Don't say that. Because we're supposed to be, right? And I know I'm probably speaking to the choir, but we need to share that. And you need to share that. People need to be in church. The third way to apply this passage is that we need to be involved in small group Bible studies. In small groups is where some of these family principles take place. It's where we come and forgiveness happens, encouragement happens, where we build each other up. We pray. We pray for the family. That's where we do these things. And if you're not in a small group, I'd encourage you to get in one. I know it's a ways away, but this fall, we're going to re be really pushing small groups, hoping to expand to have a few more small groups so we give you a few more options. And I'm really going to be pushing. I'd like to see every adult involved in a small group because we are built to grow in community. 
God created us to be that way. doesn't matter how shy you are. doesn't matter how outgoing you are. We are built for community. God made us that way. We need each other. We grow best in community, building one another up, interacting with one another, letting our, kind of our, we want to say our hair down, and just confessing sometimes and sharing people, I am struggling here, could you pray with me? Weeping and laughing together, that's what we're created to do. That's what we do. We build each other up. That's why God created the church. So many times people say, I don't need the church. God said, but you do. That's why I created the church, because you need to be a part of that. We need that. We need that. We can't be an island. We need each other. The fourth way to apply this passage is we need to allow the love of God to flow in us and through us. We have to forgive each other, right? We have to pray for each other. We are part of the church family. We're part of the body of Christ. We have to, if we can't do that inside of the church, if we can't do that amongst us who have Christ as a commonality together, how can we expect to do it outside? We have to do that. We're in this together. None of us are top tier or second tier or third tier Christians. We all come to Christ at the foot of the cross. We all need Jesus. We all are struggling. We all need to encourage one another and build one another up. That's why this memory verse is so important to, today. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 through 13, where it says here, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, that's the family of God. That's you if you know Christ as your Savior. It's talking about the body of Christ. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. That's family. That's describing what a family does. That's what, how we're to be inside the body of Christ. That the family has that bottomless sea and shoreless ocean kind of love. The kind of love that God has for us is the kind of love that we need to have for each other. That's what family does. And we're to be family, the body of Christ. We're to love one another, forgive one another, not turn our backs on each other, not hold grievances against one another, but to love one another the way Christ loved us. And Jesus gave us a picture with the prodigal. So many times we look at the prodigals another way, but it's a picture of God's love and his forgiveness. And it's a picture for us how we're supposed to love. doesn't matter what they did against you. And that son sinned mightily, wouldn't you agree, against the father. And the father forgave him. Didn't even think twice about it, he forgave him. Ran out to his son to greet him. And he forgave him. If you are here, that's for all of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior. You're part of the family, you're part of the body of Christ. If you are here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior yet, and it's all right because we all were there at one time, uh, it means you're not in the family of God. You're not. No one is born in the family from their mother's womb. You're, we're born in the family. Sometimes we want to think we're all born in the family of God. You are not. The Bible talks about we're all sinners. Romans 5, 12 talks about we're born into sin. All of us are sinners. But we don't have to teach our children how to do bad. They know how to do that, right? We've got to teach them how to do good. The only way that you become part of the family of God is by God's grace, by God's invitation to you. He's inviting you to be a part of his family and that we respond in his invitation. And it comes through Jesus. That Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, and he was buried and raised on the third day. And you and I understand that he was our substitutionary atonement, that he took your place upon the cross. He died for you. He paid your sin debt on that cross. So all your sins are paid by Jesus. And we come to recognize who Jesus is, that he's the Son of God, that he's God, and what he did for us, that Jesus died for me. The Bible said it's by God's grace through faith that we're saved. And we come in understanding. God's inviting us, and every time the gospel message goes out, you're being invited. God is inviting you, but you have to respond. 
We have to respond to the message. We have to respond to what Jesus did. The Bible says we do that by faith, by understanding that I'm a sinner, and that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. He took my place. He paid my sin debt. And so I come to the point where I say yes to Jesus. Yes, Jesus. I know I'm a sinner. I know Jesus died on the cross, so I accept him as my Savior. I put my faith and trust in the finished work of Christ. Put my faith in him. If you've never done that, please do that today. Please do that today. And once you do that, you become part of the family of God, right? And then all the things I said to you apply that we're part of the family. But you got to be part of the family before you say, I am in the family. The only way to be part of God's family, there's only one way. It's through Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes into God's family except through me is what he was saying. There's only one way, and it's through Jesus. Amen? And if you haven't done that yet, don't sit there and go, do it today. Today's the day. If you have questions, please see me after the service, okay? Let's all take care of that, okay? All of us who know Christ your Savior, we're family. Let's act like family. Let's love one another. Let's encourage one another. Let's build each other up. Let's pray for each other. Not only when we're here, when we're outside of here. Let's encourage one another. Let's be family. And our picture is God's love for us. Amen? Let's treat others like that. Let's pray. Lord, you come and we praise you. We praise you because, God, you are good. You are so good. Lord, you are the master storyteller. When you tell stories, that amazes me. On the spot, you can make up the story. You have the story to share. And, Lord, you are speaking past people, over people's heads, around people. I mean, the, the story is amazing because it was talking to all people, everyone. And it talks to all of us, where we are with Jesus. Are, are we sinners that need you as our Savior, Lord, or are we stuck in our sins of self-righteousness so many times, Lord? So I, I pray, Lord, as the message went out today, that the Holy Spirit would not let it come back empty, that every one of us would realize where we are. Am I in the family or am I not in the family? I've trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior, if not. If not, Lord, Help, every, help us to realize we're sinners in need of a Savior would accept Christ. For all of us that are in the family, we praise God for being part of the family. Lord, it's not anything that we did, but it's everything that you did. That you sent your Son, and Jesus, you came and died on the cross for us. And it's only through Jesus, by your grace, that we're saved. By you dying for us, taking our place on that cross. So we come, Lord, and we're so thankful for what we have. But you brought us into this church body of Christ, this local body, we're to be family. Help us to be the best family we can be. Lord, we have not arrived. We can be a better family. And I pray that that only happens, Lord, not by, by just by saying it. It happens by each and every one of us searching our own hearts and saying, how can I be a better family member? How can I treat others better? How can I encourage and love and show God's love and his mercy and his grace? How can I uh, show God's forgiveness to others, not hold grievance against others, because Lord, each one of us needs to come and yield our hearts and minds to you. Before we come here, we need to pray and say, God, help me to be uh, Jesus in my, in my hands and feet, in my heart, my emotions. Help me to respond with Christ-like actions and words to others. But because in every one of us, Lord, we respond with how people treat us. We so many times respond negatively. But help us to be like Jesus, who responds with your love, your grace, your mercy. And the first response we have is always forgiveness, always to build others up. Help us to be the family that you called us to be. Help us to really get a glimpse of the love of God that 
we have for us. May that be our picture of the love that we have for others. That we want, we want God's love. And the way we want God's love to be over us, blessing us, that's the kind of love that we need to share with others. We need to treat others the way we want to be treated by God, the way we want to be treated by others. Help us to have that kind of mindset, that we might be the hands and feet of Jesus. If everything we do, of everything that we say, all of our actions, all of our motives, we're thinking of others, that we may glorify you. Help us today, Lord, we may not have done this, and none of us arrived, that today we say, I'm going to make that stand today. I'm going to surrender my hearts and lives. I'm going to make that stand to be more like Jesus as part of this family. Or maybe, Lord, it's for me. I'm going to make that stand today, and I'm going to call or go visit that son or daughter and tell them that I love them and I accept them. Let's work through this. Or maybe for them, it's that the same person. It's that person that says, Lord, I, I'm, I'm here, and I don't know Jesus as my Savior yet, and I'm going to trust him as my Savior. Wherever we're at, Lord, if we're in our self-righteousness, they can down upon people because of their sin, Lord, that you would just deal with it today. That would purify our hearts this morning as we ask for forgiveness so we can be that family member that you want us to be. And we can have the heart as that father had for his children, forgiving, bearing the grievances, not holding anything against anyone, but loving them and forgiving them and showing them grace and mercy. And to celebrate with them. Celebrate with them. So, Lord, help us to be, none of us arrived, help us to be people you called us to be. And, Lord, we ask all these things in, in that wonderful, amazing name, in that loving name, the one who died on the cross for us, in Jesus' name, amen.